Hi, welcome. Let's uh, let's get started. My name is Gene Healy. I'm a vice president here at Cato, and I'll be your moderator today. Uh, on that note, we just turned off our the ringers on our cell phones, and if you'd be kind enough to do that too, if you could, that would be great. Uh, thank you all for being here. Last week, an indignant Representative Mike Pompeo chastised the organizers of Austin's South by Southwest conference for inviting Edward Snowden to address the crowd via video feed. He said that Snowden is a traitor and a common criminal whose only apparent qualification is a willingness to steal from his own government. Well, four decades before Snowden, a band of seemingly ordinary citizens with a willingness to steal from their own government exposed shocking criminality at the highest levels of our intelligence agencies. And in her new book, The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI, Betty Metzger brings together this, this, the full story of that event for the first time. And I can tell you it's a narrative that is as riveting as any heist film, but far more significant. The story in brief is that 43 years ago last Saturday, under the cover of the first Ali Frazier fight, an unlikely band of anti-war activists calling themselves the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI broke into a FBI branch office in Media, Pennsylvania, making off with reams of classified documents. Despite a manhunt involving 200 agents at its peak, the, the burglars were never caught. But the files that they mailed to selected journalists and politicians proved that the agency had been for years waging a secret unconstitutional war against American citizens. As a young Washington Post reporter, Ms. Metzger was the first to receive and publish selections from the files. Uh, that was over the protests of then Attorney General and later Watergate felon John Mitchell, who called the Post three times, falsely claiming that publication would jeopardize national security and threaten agents' lives. Well, to their credit, the Post resisted that pressure as they'd later resist similar pressure with the Pentagon Papers and the Watergate affair. Uh, the story that Betty Metzger tells in the burglary came first, and to my mind, it deserves to be at least as well known as those episodes. Uh, frankly, Woodward and Bernstein, Redford and Hoffman, the, all the president's men, the potted plant in the window, that is nothing on this. That is nothing to compare with uh, Keith Forsyth's crowbar. And it's not just cinematic, the story in this book. It's, uh, it's at least as significant as those episodes, uh, because there's a, a very good chance with, that without that break-in, we would not know about the COINTEL program, the most notorious uh, of these programs. In her career as a journalist, Ms. Metzger covered urban affairs, racial issues, criminal justice, and religion. She's also the author of Framed, the New Right Attack on Chief Justice Rose Byrd and the, and the Courts, as well as Winds of Change, Challenges Confronting Journalism Education. As head of the journalism education program at San Francisco State University, she founded the university's Center for the Integration and Improvement of Journalism. 
He's a former member of the board of, of the Center for Investigative Reporting and a founding member of Investigative Reporters and Editors. And with that background, it shouldn't surprise you that she knows how to write one hell of a lead. This is the, the first paragraph of the burglary. In late 1970, William Davidon, a mild-mannered physics professor at Haverford College, privately asked a few people this question. What do you think of burglarizing an FBI office? I defy you to put the book down after that, because I sure couldn't. Please welcome Betty Metzger. Thank you, Jean, for those very nice comments, and thanks for inviting me here. Um, I find that uh, when I talk, I sometimes talk with the burglars, which is always fun, um, but uh, I find that the people are so interested in the details of how the break-in occurred and then what did they do that we sometimes uh, don't remember to talk about why they were doing this and what the FBI was like before. And I can't really expect people in most audiences to remember what J. Edgar Hoover was doing prior to uh, 43 years ago and what inspired the burglars to do this. Um, it's uh, almost hard to imagine, I think, in today's world that um, someone could, uh, a public official could be an icon in the way that Hoover was. There were people in various movements, the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, who thought that there were spies, that the FBI was spying on their movements and that the FBI wanted to suppress dissent. But as far as the American public as a whole was concerned, J. Edgar Hoover was enormously admired in some polls uh, more popular than, than some presidents. And in fact, he at one time considered running for president. Um, he had been appointed to the FBI, uh, as FBI director in 1924 at age 29, which is also a rather striking fact, hard for anyone to imagine, and the fact that he then served for a half century. Um, he died in, in 1972, a little more than a year after the media burglary. Um, I guess it's important also to understand that there was absolutely no oversight of the FBI. There were no uh, committees in Congress that assumed any kind of oversight for the FBI. Uh, attorney generals who were technically his boss usually treated him as though he was their boss, which is the way he wanted it. And uh, presidents also. Uh, paid little attention to him. And while the public had no inkling that there was an, a secret FBI that sort of dominated his, his daily life and the life of, of many agents, there were people in power who, who did have some idea of that. They had an inkling that there were files about people's personal lives and feared that they were about their lives. And so that was one of the reasons why he got a pass at the highest level of, of official Washington. There's a historian, Richard Powers, who has written a few books on the FBI. And I think this uh, from him really sums up uh, the source of Hoover's power extremely well. He said, Hoover's power to conduct secret operations depended on the absolute freedom he had from any inquiry into the internal operations of the Bureau. 
it had been that luxury of freedom, let, let him indulge himself with such abuses of power as his persecution of King, the COINTELPROS, and his harassment of bureaucratics. On the night of March 8, 1971, that changed forever. A group calling itself the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI broke into the resident agency in Media, Pennsylvania. The burglars were never caught. And before I talk about the burglars, I'd just like to also point out one thing. I mentioned about the no oversight. I should also add that there also was no oversight by journalists. Uh, the FBI was reported on almost not at all. Um, the, but the only reporter who had done significant investigative work on the FBI um, that, at that time, was until that time, was Jack Nelson. And Jack Nelson uh, was then in, in the uh, Washington Bureau of the Los Angeles Times. Um, and something significant about Jack that I didn't um, learn until uh, I did the investigation for this book was that at that very time, as a result of a book that he had written the previous year called The Orangeburg Massacre, at that very time, in 1971, Hoover was working furiously to try to get Jack Nelson fired from the LA Times. Uh, and this may explain why there was so little journalism done about J. Edgar Hoover. Tom Wicker, a columnist at the New York Times, occasionally did, did commentary. But as far as investigative reporting, uh, Jack was just about the, the only person. As Jean said, the, uh, the burglars were uh, pursued by 200 agents who uh, were uh, on this case, most of them in the Philadelphia area, New Jersey, but actually the investigation took place all over the country. And suddenly, all those photographs, thousands of photographs that had been taken at anti-war demonstrations, civil rights activities, those photos were asked for and they poured into the Philadelphia and Washington offices and to look, look for suspects. I'd like to tell you, introduce you to the, the burglars. There were eight people. Five of them uh, became known uh, two months ago on the day when my book was published. And they're also in a documentary that I'm sure will come to Washington sometime. It's going to premiere in April at the Tribeca Film Festival. It's called 1971. It's really the uh, work of one person uh, the thoughts of one person and the commitment of one person who is responsible for the fact that this happened. And that's Bill Davidon. Bill Davidon was a physics professor. He had been at Haverford College teaching since 1961. And um, he was a Navy veteran, but he had become a pacifist after Hiroshima and the bombing, uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he, his, his activism at first was completely focused on um, anti-nuclear efforts. <clears throat> he began to realize um, by the end of 1969 the great sense of hopelessness and futility that existed in the peace movement. And although he was an optimistic type himself, um, he, even he had, had difficulty beginning then to, to find hope, because the war had been going on for so long. And he couldn't see any end in sight. Officials seemed to be ignoring evidence and questions that were presented to them. 
The peace movement was pretty large in Philadelphia, and he belonged to various segments of it, the scientific uh, segments of it, uh, the campus parts of it, um, and the Catholic peace movement. And uh, one thing that he did was part of a group called the Resistance, a very large umbrella group in, in the Philadelphia peace movement. And that's where he found some of his uh, most uh, gratifying experiences, where he spent times on coffee houses, on military bases, listening to, to active duty uh, soldiers and talking to them about the war and offering them opportunities uh, to resist if they changed their mind. In, 19, in the beginning of 1970, more and more as he went from one part of the peace movement to another, in Philadelphia, he kept hearing people talk about what to many of them was a new problem, but a fairly serious one. And that was that they thought there were spies in their midst. And he didn't believe it, he rejected it. And by, by both personality and, and scientific training, he really hated conspiracies. And uh, he thought that people were just so disappointed that they were despairing and imagining possibly that there were spies in their midst. But he kept listening and he kept hearing it more and more, including from, from very uh, reasonable people. And he thought that this was a problem so serious that it needed to be solved. What do you do when you think that the FBI director, uh, led by the most powerful official in the, in the country in, in many ways, is responsible for the suppression of dissent? Uh, most people certainly, I think, when, if they had had that insight or come to that conclusion, they would have thought, well, this is, this is really awful and it's too bad, but I don't see what I can do about it, certainly. And that was not the way Bill Davidun worked. When he saw um, a problem, he tried to figure out a way to solve it, including this one. And he had some idea of what Hoover's personality was like from what he had read. And he thought that he was a consummate bureaucrat and that that probably meant that he kept greatly detailed records and required everyone else to do so too. And that led him to think that if there was a great amount of, of political uh, suppression taking place, that that too would be documented. And if that were the case, there was evidence and it ought to be possible to get that evidence, even, he decided, if it could not be officially compelled. So by the end of 1970, he had decided that it was very important to solve this. And because in the previous year, I think beginning in the very late, in late 69, he had participated in the Catholic peace movement in the, uh, raid on draft boards where they had removed files at, in the night and actually destroyed them in the hope that they could have an impact on slowing down the draft boards that they raided. And they chose draft boards that were in the neighborhoods of uh, poor black communities or working class white communities where they thought there was a disproportionate number of people being drafted. So as he thought about how to get the evidence to prove whether or not Hoover was suppressing dissent. Eventually, burglary came to mind. And he considered it repugnant, just as he did when he first heard about it from the Catholic left. But he decided that 
there was no, probably no legal way at that time that you could get information about Hoover's FBI. And if you were to find evidence, it, you would have to break in. So by late December, he started meeting with other people to ask them what they thought of burglarizing an FBI office. Uh, he met separately with nine people and asked them that question. All were surprised, if not shocked, um, even at that time of intense activity and extreme actions. One of, the only one who said no was a philosophy professor. The others all said yes after thinking about it carefully and then deciding that it was pretty important and worth risking many years of prison. One of them, the person I refer to in the book as the ninth burglar, dropped out just days before the burglary took place. And a couple of weeks later, visited the couple in the, in the group and said, I'm thinking of turning you all in. He knew absolutely everything about the plan. Now, the eight who, who moved forward are Keith Forsyth. Keith Forsyth um, was about 20 at the time. And he took a correspondence course in locksmithing in order to become a lock picker and um, learned the skills pretty well. Uh, he had walked by the FBI door in media and discovered what kind of a lock it was, went out and bought that kind of a lock and installed it at the attic of the Reigns, whom I'll describe later, uh, the attic of their home where the group would meet every night after they did casing. And he also but made tools. He thought I wouldn't, he wouldn't buy locksmithing tools. He would make them, so he bought two locks so he could take one apart and figure out what it would take to take it apart and put it back together. And um, he, would pra he practiced his picking skills every night he got it down to 30 seconds and thought, it's really going to be pretty easy. They have a simple lock on that door. Um, Bob, I should say also that he, like Bob Williamson, whom I'm about to describe, um, were both very young, and both of them had dropped out of college uh, the previous year so that they could spend most of their time working against the war. Uh, Keith was a part-time cab driver. Bob Williamson uh, was uh, working part-time as a social worker for the, for the state of, of Pennsylvania. Um, Bob Williamson was from a small town in Ohio. Keith was from a small, I mean, Bob Williamson was a small town in central New Jersey, and Keith was from a small town in Ohio. Um, <clears throat> a notable fact about Bob a couple years earlier was that he had won the American Legion oratorical contest in New Jersey for a speech that he gave where he would dramatically walk out on the stage with the audience full of legionnaires, and he would start sniffing as he walked across the stage, and they, I smell smoke. And then he would announce rather dramatically, it's the smoke of draft cards burning, and then would thrill the legionnaires with his speech about the, how terrible these people were who were burning their draft cards. Needless to say, by 1971, Bob had gone through some changes. <laughs> and then there are two people who were burglars who, although they agreed to tell me their stories, um, 
are not named. They, for personal, each of them for different personal reasons, uh, chose not to be named in the book. Uh, one of them, Ron Durst, um, came from a family in, in New York. They were all, by the way, living in Philadelphia at the time and involved in the peace movement there. And Ron had come from a family. Uh, his parents were Holocaust survivors. And he grew up hearing many stories about aunts and uncles that he would never meet because they had been killed in the Holocaust. And he very early knew what never again meant and, and related that to his, to his family's experience. But then, uh, in, in Philadelphia in his early 20s, when he started to become involved in the peace movement, he, he also applied that to the war uh, and to, to Vietnam and to Cambodia, never again. Susan Smith uh, was also a college professor. And Susan had been active in uh, the civil rights movement. She, she went to, to Mississippi in uh, the summer of 64. And um, she had a very dramatic experience shortly after the burglary, almost immediately after the burglary. She had this feeling one night as she was trying to go to sleep that she suddenly thought, I took my glove off. She was one of the four people in the group who actually went inside that night and in the dark removed the files and stuffed them in large suitcases. And she couldn't remember what, the, what was real. She would march herself through every step as she went inside the office and she would think, no, I did not remove my glove. And then she would say, I'm not sure. And this actually went on uh, on a fairly regular basis for her for uh, a couple years, where most nights would be interrupted by what really amounted to, to a nightmare. And I think sometimes that it may have something to do with the fact that she does not want to be public. She still is somewhat afraid, although that certainly has not been the case in response to the other burglars coming out. And then two people, John and Bonnie Raines, were a couple. They were a young couple with three children under age eight at the time of the burglary. And John was a, a professor of comparative religion at Temple University, and Bonnie was a director of a daycare center in Philadelphia. And they had done something that was unusual even for that time. Years earlier, not long after they were married and living in, in uh, uh, near Union Seminary, where John was a graduate student, and he went, he went south almost every summer during the 60s, and they made a decision, uh, a promise to each other, that if they were ever confronted with the possibility that together they could engage in some kind of resistance against injustice, with the hope of having some kind of significant impact, that they would hope that even though they were parents, that they would be willing to do this. And they, the basis on which they explained this is that they had the feeling, and, and they still believe that this is true, that most people, when they're during the time that they're raising their, their children, so a good 20 years of their, of their lives, decide that they really can't take any risks during that time. 
and that there's a, it's a sort of exit from the possibility of getting engaged in significant activity of this type. And they decided that that was a cop-out and that it was important for parents also to step up to the plate and be willing to risk. And so a few weeks before the burglary, they met with John's brother and made arrangements for him to raise their children if, in fact, they had been arrested and gone to prison. There's an eighth burglar, a, a very young woman. I think she was actually the youngest member of the group at that time, probably 20. And I have not found her, despite my looking and the burglars also looking. Um, they started work, they met together for the first time as a group at the end of December, and they chose the name for themselves, the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. And that's exactly how they thought of themselves, as a commission that might have been appointed by, or should have been appointed by a president, Congress, some official, to investigate J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. And after the burglary, that's exactly how they behaved, going to this remote farmhouse every night and going through the thousands of files that they had stolen and collating, reading, um, and deciding uh, what, to, what to release. And they actually released all the ones that had any kind of a political notation to them. And as Jean said, they chose a very special night for the, for the uh, burglary. They chose the night of the first Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight. Uh, this was a very important fight. It's still called the fight of the century. Some people call it the sporting event of the century. It attracted huge attention all over the world, in part because Muhammad Ali was returning to the ring for the first time since he had uh, been uh, convicted six years earlier for refusing to, to serve in the army. Um, Joe Frazier, the divisions were very interesting. Joe Frazier had gone to the White House to meet with Nixon, and he was rooting for, Nixon was rooting for Joe Frazier and, and helped uh, actually get the uh, fight commission to be willing to uh, re re restore Ali's license. Um, the fight did, in fact, serve the purpose that they had hoped for. Uh, at a crucial time, uh, it provided noise so that Keith didn't have to uh, worry about the fact that a bolt made a rather large uh, sound when he broke it. When he got to the um, office, there were two locks in the door, not the one that he remembered or that Bonnie Raines, who had done casing inside the FBI office, remembered. And in that moment, he thought, I think we're not going to be able to do this. And he called back to where the other burglars were and said, I think we might have to call it off. But they thought about it this very carefully and moved ahead. And um, he broke in a different door, one that they had planned not to enter because there was a huge filing cabinet on the other side of it. Afterwards, they drove to a small um, farmhouse on a Quaker uh, conference ground that Bill Davidon had borrowed for two weeks for the reading and sorting process. And within an hour, I mean, they, they had no idea. I think it's very important in contrast to the insider whistleblowers that we all know of, Dan Ellsberg um, and, uh, and Snowden. They knew what they were presenting to the public. Um, they had collected it purposefully. These people had no idea whether they would find a single file of any relevance. For all they knew, they might have, in the dark, 
when they picked everything out, they may have had mostly uh, useless personnel uh, pieces of paper, personnel files. But within an hour, as they gathered and started to go through what was in those suitcases, they found one file that made them realize um, that what they had done had not been in vain. And this file actually became emblematic of the burglary. It was a file in which agents were urged to enhance paranoia and make people think there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox. And even they were quite struck by that, um, as I was when I received that in the first set of files that, that I got from them at the Washington Post. Ten days after the burglary, they sorted, they'd completed sorting the files, dividing them into sets, and then sent them out in sequence of sequential sets over a period of two months. And these files were the first glimpse that the American public and Congress had of FBI files, even people in the Department of Justice, which is where the FBI is. And in the first set, in addition to that one, <clears throat> excuse me, in addition to the enhance the paranoia documents, were the files that describe activ the activity of the FBI. Informers working on campuses included people, switchboard operators who had been hired, mail carriers, and mid-level college administrators. Every black student on the campus of Swarthmore College was being watched and had an FBI file, purely by reason of being black. That was one of the distinctions, one of the things I learned from the files that I thought was interesting. There was a somewhat different standard for uh, a, a white person being targeted by Hoover's FBI versus a black person being targeted by Hoover's FBI. For a white person to be targeted, um, you at least had to um, show some sign through uh, what, you, what you read, who you associated with, uh, letters you may have written to the editor, in the mildest form, I might add. You, used to, you at least had to show some sign of being subversive within his very broad range of what subversive meant. Uh, you did have to be revolutionary. You simply might have raised questions in a, a letter to the editor. But you did something as a white person that attracted their attention. For a black person, it was simply enough to be black. A, for Hoover to be black was to be dangerous and to be considered subversive automatically. And one of the uh, things that showed this so clearly, I think it was in the very first set of files that I received, was the files that, that revealed the blanket surveillance in the black community. It was really spelled out quite clearly that um, a black person might come under surveillance at any place a person might normally be expected to go, uh, the corner store, uh, the classrooms in high school or college, churches, libraries, bars, restaurants, just anywhere. And then there were prescriptions for the people who should be hired to be informers in black communities. And students, any student who was going to go to college, 
any black student who was going to be, go to college, that person was considered a prize so that that person could then become an informer on other black students. One thing that illustrates how invasive this was is that at that time, throughout the 60s, early 70s, every FBI agent was required to have at least one informer who reported to him on a regular basis about the activities of black people. We're not saying revolutionary black people. We're just saying black people. And in DC, um, every FBI agent was required to have at least six informers who reported to him regularly on the activities of black people. One of the things that was revealed in the, in the media files that the public didn't know about was the existence of a security index. It had started many years before. And this was an index kept by the FBI. And it was continually expanding. And it was an index of the people that the FBI would uh, detain without habeas corpus in the case of a national emergency. He had been told by one attorney general, Francis Biddle, that this was unconstitutional and to get rid of it. And uh, he said he would, but he didn't, and he simply renamed it. And Biddle also didn't do any continuing oversight and had no idea that his order had not been followed. But the worst was yet to come. There was a file in the media files that had, um, that was a, a routing slip, just a routing slip, and it had a, in big <coughs> letters at the top the label COINTELPRO. And um, I reported on the file that it was attached to, but I didn't use the term COINTELPRO because it didn't seem to, I, well, I certainly didn't know what the connection was that this file that I wrote about went into a large category of things called COINTELPRO. And the article that I wrote did have an impact because the FBI was watching to see if that file would be written about because they knew the COINTELPRO routing slip was attached to it. And they, if that uh, came out in public, they then knew that for the first time, the term COINTELPRO was outside the bureau. And what, the, what that caused to happen when they realized it was outside the bureau was at first Hoover wrote to the people in charge of the offices around the country and said, um, just increase secrecy on these operations, but keep them up. In fact, make them even more intense. And then two weeks later, officials said, yeah, this is too dangerous. And they said, let's get rid of the name, not the program, but let's get rid of the name. And then we'll just, each one will be approved separately from now on. So along came Carl Stern, a little more than a year after the, uh, the media burglary. And Carl was a reporter covering uh, legal affairs for NBC television at the time. And Carl, uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee one day, on someone's desk, saw that cover uh, routing slip and thought, that's a strange term. Um, I wonder what that is. And because Carl did that, the next building block in the ultimate discoveries that were made during the Church Committee uh, took place. He took that media file and he wrote a letter to um, the acting attorney general at the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he asked for 
the um, founding documents that would explain what COINTELPRO was. And the uh, Kleindienst, the acting attorney general at the time, said that they would, it would endanger national security to release this information and, and, and turned him down. Um, and that's what also had been said when we wrote the, the media stories a year earlier. But Carl kept uh, persevering, asking the FBI and the Justice Department. Finally, he sued. And in the end of, of, of 1973, a judge ordered that those founding papers be, be turned over to Carl. And the, the pub, at this point, public interest and, and Congress interest uh, ratcheted up considerably. At the time the media files came out, there was, for the first time, a demand for an investigation of the FBI, a demand in Congress and a demand from the leading editorial pages in, in, the, in the country. It didn't go anywhere, but it started an, uh, a movement that, that continued. And then with the exposure of the COINTELPRO documents, uh, interest uh, increased considerably. And the COINTELPRO operations turned out to be the meanest and most vicious of the Hoover operations. The actions that people had no idea were being done by the FBI. And one that probably all of you have heard about at some time was the, the effort by Hoover to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide. And that was probably the worst of, of his actions against King, but in fact, there were many, and they took place over the entire time that, that King was a, a public activist. Um, there were other actions that uh, resulted in, in death. For instance, um, in Chicago in 1969, uh, Fred Hampton, the uh, leader in the Black Panthers in Chicago, president of the of Black Panthers at that time, was killed. What had happened there uh, was that a, an FBI informer in Chicago um, be, became part of the Chicago Panthers and um, do a diagram of the apartment where Fred Hampton lived, including uh, a, a drawing of what he labeled Fred's bed. And a short time after that, he submitted it to the Chicago police, and the Chicago police hired a shooter who went in and shot and killed Fred Hampton in, while he slept one night. And a short time after that, the FBI informer uh, was given a reward and, and a thank you letter for having caused that murder. We didn't know any of this as it was happening. Again, people had no idea what was happening until these files started coming out. Now, the tipping point came. There were lots of activities started being generated, 73, 74. Um, for the first time, the Justice Department took some notice and started questioning the FBI. The FBI refused to give the Justice Department, even at that stage after some had become public, refused to give the Justice Department original files. The tipping point that made the investigation possible came in late 1974 when Seymour Hersh wrote a story in the New York Times that revealed that the CIA was also engaged in domestic spying and had been for a number of years. And this was against the charter of the CIA. It was not permitted to do operations in the United States, except as they pertain to foreign, foreign enemies. 
less than a month after that, um, Congress couldn't wait. Uh, there was pressure to do something. And that's when the decision was made in both houses of Congress to conduct official investigations of all intelligence agencies. At the end of, of those hearings, a number of reforms were put in place. It was very easy to agree on, on one of them, which was that an FBI director's term should not be longer than 10 years. They decided to dispense with the possibility of a half century of term, of term for an FBI director. Um, and it was, it was clear that that had been part of the problem, that over the 48 years that Hoover served, he really came to think of it as his fiefdom. Other uh, uh, reforms that were put in place included uh, establishing permanent intelligence oversight committees in both the Senate and the House. And as we know very well from recent experience, these mechanisms have not always functioned well, but they function. And by merely being there, they provide an avenue for asking questions and for investigating intelligence agencies if the political will is present. I think that most of the most important reform that occurred at that time was the strengthening of the Freedom of Information Act in 1974, because it's tended to be the case that uh, it's not the Congressional Committee initiative that causes uh, intelligence agencies to be, in, to be investigated, but compelling information that comes out as a result of people getting such information as a result of a freedom of information request. Another important result is that after that happened, after the, it became somewhat easier, although easy is not an appropriate word to describe, using the Freedom of Information Act most of the time, it did become possible for scholars and journalists uh, to get files. And one of the things that uh, was quite striking is that for the first time, an accurate and authentic history of the FBI could be written because for the first time, it was possible for scholars to get original files. Prior to that time, we had only the, the history that Hoover had left behind in his vast criminal records division, which released information controlled by him. In the end, what was revealed um, was that the FBI had an enormous influence, uh, not so much in law enforcement, but in the most important parts of American life, education, war, and race, for instance. In education, uh, the use of, of informers' files uh, in uh, private hearings, the HUAC hearings, and uh, state hearings around the country in the 1950s and early 60s, where people lost their jobs and had no access to the accusers or to the files in which they were uh, accused of being subversive, um, had a very significant impact in education, particularly in the, in the social sciences, where to some extent uh, changed the, the nature of, of research done. In war, the influence was enormous. Um, in the Vietnam War, from the day that the Gulf of Tonkin hearings began, probably even earlier, but certainly then because we have evidence, um, from the very beginning of the discussion of that 
resolution that was so important uh, to both Johnson and, and Nixon in their decisions about the war. Um, the FBI was there listening to see what was being said and would continue then listening and paying attention to protest um, to people until the day Hoover, until after the day Hoover died. But it was an obsession with Hoover continuously. And one of the striking things to, for me was to learn that when the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was being discussed on the floor of the Senate, that the, there were two senators who voted no, which we uh, people in that era knew very well, Ernest Gruning of Alaska and Wayne Morris of Oregon. And of course, as we know more about Hoover, it was not, it's not unusual to realize that he considered them subversives for having voted against the res resolution. But what really surprised me was to learn that the FBI then somehow collected the got access to the letters and telegrams of everybody who wrote to those two senators, expressing support for the stance that they had taken uh, in, with their vote on that resolution. And then those people acquired FBI files and that went on for years, raising a question or stating that kind of approval was not acceptable. And then when it comes to race, I think that the results have been profound and probably in ways that we haven't begun to know or deal with as far as the impact is concerned. You know, it began at the highest level with Hoover uh, expressing to, to presidents uh, concern if they had any uh, positive inclination toward the civil rights movement. I think it had a strong impact on, on Eisenhower, for, for, for instance. He would say, don't, don't get involved in that because it's all motivated by communists, which was enough to make people stand back. Um, setting group against group within the black community uh, to foment violence, intra-organizational violence, for instance, with the Panthers, but also across organizations. The instigation of violence uh, among black groups and within black groups that was caused by informers, we now can know in retrospect, was so great that it's impossible to look back on that era at, at any uh, incidents of, of significant violence uh, in the black community and have any certainty about whether it was genuine conflict or whether it was conflict that was manufactured um, by Hoover's uh, informers in order to accomplish what the perp one of the purposes of the COINTELPRO operations, which was to neutralize and destroy groups. Now, just briefly in, in closing my role, uh, I come into this story twice. <laughs> I was a reporter at the Washington Post and received the files two weeks after the burglary. And um, one thing you might be interested in knowing about that is that it was a difficult decision for the Post. It wasn't a difficult decision for me. I was a young reporter. I read those files, and I thought, this is very important. I'm, let's write this story. Um, and at the top of echelons, it was a, it was a different matter. Um, editors had strong support for it and did support it. But what I didn't know as I wrote that afternoon uh, was that Catherine Graham opposed writing about it, and so did the chief legal counsel for, for the Post. Uh, I didn't realize that until 6 o'clock that afternoon when I emerged with my story and was told that it might not run. And the decision to run 
was made by, by 10 o'clock that night. And um, the editors had supported it all along. Now, I should point out that there, the reasons for that may be obvious. Um, for one thing, this was unprecedented. We were still three months from the Pentagon Papers. And when I received those stolen files, it was the first time that a journalist had, had received secret government files from a source outside government who had stolen them. So that caused some pause in the publisher's office. It also was the first time that Catherine Graham was demanded by the Nixon administration to suppress a story because they didn't like it. Those two factors were pretty strong uh, things to have on her plate uh, and have to make a decision about in a fairly short period of time. It was, I like to think it was the beginning of her having to deal with this and then that was practice for what came just a few months later and the next year later. I should also point out that the Attorney General, John Mitchell, uh, the entire afternoon was calling each of the two principal editors, Ben Bradley and, and Ben Bagdickian, and then Catherine. Uh, he called each of them at least twice that afternoon, uh, telling them that this story must not run and telling them that uh, it would in, endanger lives and endanger national security. Uh, two things that you take very seriously. And it was very evident from reading the files that that was not the case. Um, so um, years later, many years later, um, I had a trip from, I was living in California by that time, and I had a trip to Missouri and a trip to Massachusetts and in between a long weekend. And I decided that I would give myself the gift of a long weekend in Philadelphia, where I had worked before I came to the Washington Post at the beginning of 1970. And so I just filled that weekend with uh, personal appointments with former colleagues and friends, people I had known in Philadelphia. And the first evening, uh, I, had made a, I had called a couple and asked them if I could uh, see them. And we hadn't seen each other for about 10 years. We were acquaintances, not close friends, but we liked each other and were happy at that prospect of seeing each other. And they said, come to dinner. And so I went to dinner, and we had many things to talk about that had happened in our lives in the past 10 years. And we went to the uh, dining room to, to, to eat. And in the course of the dinner, um, their youngest child, the fourth child in their family, uh, came into the dining room. And uh, the father said, Mary, we want you to know, Betty, because many years ago, when your dad and mother had information about the FBI that we wanted to give to the American people, we gave it to Betty. And I was shocked. It was clear that it meant nothing to the little girl. <laughs> and I could hardly wait until she left the room. And so I, as soon as she did, I said, are you telling me that you're the media burglars? And... Uh, they said yes, <laughs> and I was truly amazed. I never had any idea who the burglars were. I had never given it much thought. I just assumed that because of that very large peace movement in Philadelphia and that the return address was media and that it had happened so close to Philadelphia that it probably was people 
in the Philadelphia peace movement. Um, and indeed, <laughs> they were two people whom, whom I knew. And that was the beginning of my then uh, thinking of little else <laughs> for a few weeks. And, uh, and then finally saying, uh, I would, they had told me that night that the eight of them had all promised each other that they would take the secret of the burglary, assuming they were not arrested, they would take the secret of the burglary to their graves. And so I got in touch with them a few weeks later and said, I would very much like to write a book about this. I think it's a very important piece of history that should be known. And I hope you'll reconsider that promise that you made to each other and help me found, find the other burglars. And that's the beginning of what led to the book. <laughs> Thank you, Betty. Our, our commentator today uh -huh. is uh, Cato Research Fellow and Resident Surveillance Expert Julian Sanchez. He's going to say a few things about uh, Betty's book and uh, I think also tie it into the current debate, uh, the debate that the president welcomes over the dragnet data collection programs revealed by uh, Edward Snowden. Uh, Julian uh, has been quoted, he was quoted in the, uh, the Glenn Greenwald's Guardian piece, the first piece revealing uh, this story, uh, and numerous other places, including Washington Post front front page uh, story on NSA privacy abuses. Uh, he has since advised the uh, President's Review Group on Intelligence and the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, as well as reformers in Congress. Um, Greenwald dubbed Julian one of the nation's most knowledgeable surveillance experts. And Wired Magazine placed him among the only government and security experts you need to follow. Uh, in December, he testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the 215 program. And on Monday, he was on, in that packed room in Austin, Texas, at the South by Southwest conference, hearing from Edward Snowden. So please welcome Julian. Uh, thanks. Uh, first, let me just echo Gene uh, uh, and uh, uh, say, as, as uh, Betty was, I think, too modest to do, that uh, if you have not read this book, it is absolutely uh, gripping. There's stuff that if it were made up, you would find implausible. Um, like the, the, the fact um, stunned me that uh, mere days before the burglary uh, occurred, the ringleader was meeting with Henry Kissinger at the White House um, after having been accused of being complicit in a plot to kidnap. Kissinger, uh, and having brought with him to the meeting buttons that read, kidnap Kissinger, with a question mark. Um, so reading this book, inevitably, I also um, felt a, a kind of constant sense of deja vu um, for events, of course, I, I was not really um, alive or politically active for, um, because there are so many uh, sort of amazing parallels um, to the debate that we're now conducting, uh, if it were. Uh, the cliched thing at this point were to, uh, would be to quote George Santayana about uh, those who uh, fail to study history. I'm somewhat more fatalistic. I'll quote Battlestar Galactica instead. Uh, all of this has happened before. All of this will happen again. Um, and there are a couple of dimensions which I hope that's true. Um, one is that gripping as this story is, and I, I really look forward to the uh, inevitable movie version, although I fear it will probably star 
Ben Affleck, um, <laughs> as, as William Davidon. Um, uh, but it is also you know, somewhat reassuring to note that decades on, um, while certainly one could debate whether burglarizing an FBI office was justified at the time, that's not what we talk about now. What we talk about is the substance of what was disclosed, which means I hope that at least within uh, a few years, um, I will stop getting calls to comment on the gripping question, the, you know, the, the, the essential question of whether Edward Snowden should personally be regarded as a hero or a traitor. Um, another interesting parallel, though, is that as uh, Gina and I were commenting among ourselves just before we came on, there were thousands of FBI agents who were aware of these programs that, that were going on at the time, uh, many of whom were ill at ease with them. Uh, but it really took this act of crime to expose what was happening. And I think that is revealing of uh, the way a culture shielded by secrecy, especially when people somewhat justly feel themselves uh, bound to a mission with the highest sort of moral purpose and urgency, um, can come to be blinded to what is troubling and uh, problematic in their own activities in the name of what they perceive to be such a high end. So it does sometimes take um, a radical and indeed even illegal move um, to expose things that once they are exposed are greeted with much more shock outside the organization uh, than inside. Um, the uh, other parallels we see, uh, I think, are the claims of exigency, the description uh, that he gave us of the conversation um, about whether to publish with uh, calls from the president ur uh, urging that national security would be grievously harmed if these stories were published, which of course proved not to be the case. But parallels pretty closely, I think, the account we've heard of the repeated entreaties from the White House to the New York Times as they prepared, and indeed for a year withheld, a story by James Risen and Eric Lischblau on the Stellar Wind warrantless wiretapping program, uh, which was exposed in 2005. Uh, at the time, of course, we were told that that program had been absolutely essential to national security, had prevented concrete terrorist attacks, and doubtless saved thousands of American lives. Um, again, of course, that proved not to be accurate, uh, as the uh, Inspector General of the uh, Inspector General of the Intelligence Community um, concluded in a report published some years later. Um, the intelligence officials they spoke to, in fact, were hard pressed to name any instance of a concrete intelligence success uh, that had depended on the intelligence for that, of, from that program. Um, for the most part, it seems to have generated a lot of. Uh, well, what disgruntled FBI agents referred to as Pizza Hut leads, meaning uh, you, know, you had a suspect who called a Pizza Hut, and so you had to run down the Pizza Hut delivery man and make sure that they were not also involved in terrorism. Um, we see also the extraordinary efforts that were taken to conceal illegal activity from oversight. There was, of course, much less formalized oversight at the time, um, but we see that Hoover understood the extent to which some of these activities um, would be uh, outrageous to the American people if they were exposed. And so there were a number of protocols like June mail uh, and do not file protocols, which ensured that the most sensitive documents revealing the most clearly illegal behavior um, would never find their way into the official central FBI record keeping system. They would instead make their way to uh, Hoover's own official and confidential or personal and confidential files, sometimes under the heading of administrative 
pages, that is to say not investigative but administrative pages, which usually were not in fact about administrative material but about things like um, salacious gossip and other uh, inappropriate items that you didn't want to have to admit were in the files and if an overseer ever came knocking. So this was a mechanism that allowed them to deny if someone asked, do you have a file on peace activists or do you have a file on uh, you know, the sexual uh, predilections of uh, prominent actors or political figures, you could say, no, there's no such thing in official FBI records. Um, we also find uh, the similar kind of clever use of language. Um, so uh, as I think Betty mentioned, one of the uh, ways they avoided uh, acknowledging the full extent of improper domestic surveillance of dissident groups was that they had formally dissolved the program called COINTELPRO. So when journalists asked about it, they could say, no, that program has been ended. COINTELPRO doesn't exist anymore, by which they meant it was no longer called COINTELPRO. They were still doing all of the same things under a different heading. Every time James Clapper tells you, we don't do that under this program at this time, bear this in mind. This is a, uh, a trend we see quite a bit, actually. Um, in the aftermath of the exposure of the warrantless wiretap program, uh, which was actually only one small component of the larger Stellar Wind program, which involved not just phone wiretapping, but uh, large-scale collection of internet and telephone metadata, and also interception of internet communications, uh, intelli the intelligence community basically retroactively created what was called the terrorist surveillance program. No such thing had existed before. This was a label created for the aspects of the program the New York Times had disclosed. And so they were able to talk about the terrorist surveillance program and uh, when questioned under oath by Congress, say things like, uh, no, there was never any serious internal controversy about the terrorist surveillance program. Um, now, of course, other aspects of the program had generated intense um, internal controversy, including a, uh, an almost 11th hour avoidance of, of mass resignation within the ranks of the Justice Department because the president had um, chosen to reauthorize some aspects of the program over the head of the uh, acting attorney general. Um, so he was able to answer this way, nevertheless, because um, they had defined essentially terrorist surveillance program to mean the subset of the real program of which the things I'm saying are true. Um, this is very clever. The same thing happened with uh, uh, total information awareness, you may recall this. This was um, a, an ill-advised uh, data mining program with the uh, unfortunate icon of a massive pyramid with an eye in the center with beams of surveillance power uh, uh, you know, aimed at the earth. Uh, this was, I suppose, bad public relations. This was headed by a uh, former Iran-Contra felon, John, uh, John Poindexter. Um, was sufficiently outrageous, especially after a column by the late Bill Sapphire, uh, threatening, uh, warning that this would sort of threaten mass tracking of Americans, um, that it was formally dissolved. But of course, it meant that the component parts of total information awareness were simply renamed and farmed out to a variety of different agencies. Um, we also note the obsession uh, then with people's, uh, you know, unorthodox sexual behavior. This is a very big. Um, part of, of the kind of information Hoover liked to collect under a program called Sex Deviant. He was very interested in who in public life uh, might be a homosexual, otherwise have unorthodox sexual preferences, or be, um, as one uh, a member of Congress has described, a whoremonger. Um, we see today uh, in a story that uh, Glenn Greenwald, I believe, reported in the Huffington Post, that the same kinds of tactics are being used with a less obviously 
illegitimate, but still somewhat troubling purpose. Uh, the report by Greenwald revealed that the NSA had discussed means of discrediting uh, what they called radicalizers, which is to say people not guilty of any criminal wrongdoing, people not actually affiliated with any violent terrorist group, but people engaged in online radicalizing speech, meaning uh, critical of the US, perhaps even justifying jihad or armed resistance on theological grounds, uh, in some cases US persons, in other cases English speakers overseas. But the NSA had discussed how uh, these people could be discredited by using intelligence gathered about their online sexual activities. So these are people who go online and attempt to pick up sex partners. These are people who go online to browse uh, pornographic sites that are at odds with their uh, superficial religious commitments. And so by exposing this information, um, these people can be neutralized as a political force. Um, these are tactics you might be okay with as applied to actual members of violent terrorist groups, um, as tactics applied to people basically engaged in loathsome but protected speech. I think this should be troubling. Um, we see also, uh, of course, that uh, critical members of Congress and the judiciary were heavily monitored um, so that they could be intimidated or at the very least kept tabs on. Uh, Diane Feinstein can tell you about that, apparently. Um, uh, learning, I suppose, again, that uh, um, being the most prominent defender of the intelligence community in public life does not immunize you from their scrutiny um, when they fear that you may uh, be prepared to say something that is inconvenient or embarrassing to them. Um, and finally, of course, there are the racialized elements here uh, in the uh, contemporary debate. It's not African Americans, but rather Muslims. Um, and the kind of predictable racial focus of modern surveillance does mean that you know, it, it is perhaps easier for the average American to say, well, I'm not worried about being spied on, so, um, so let them go ahead as long as it uh, has some chance of keeping us safer, whether or not it's, the surveillances are demonstrably effective. It's because there are small predictable communities that are bearing the brunt of the surveillance, as uh, Adam Goldman and Matapuzo document in their book, Enemies Within, on the uh, NYPD's infiltration program, which basically involved uh, suspicionless surveillance of mosques and other places where um, Arab Americans and Muslims would congregate, including notes on the uh, you know, apparent intensity of, of religious sermons at various places. As, um, as uh, Trevor Aronson discusses in his excellent book, The Terror Factory, noting that um, the intelligence community now maintains domestically a network some 15,000 informants primarily directed uh, at the Muslim community, vastly, vastly more than Hoover's FBI maintained at their peak. Um, and as I go to my friend Spencer Ackerman's excellent reporting for Wired on uh, FBI training materials finally purged as a result of his, uh, his reporting on this, but FBI training materials which characterized Muslims as inherently violent and suggested that not merely, uh, you know, extremists and radicals, but ordinary mainstream Muslims were intrinsically disposed to violence, and the more devout one was, the more naturally uh, one would be at risk for becoming a terrorist. Um, there is, a, you know, in the same way that Hoover was, I think, paranoid about um, the civil rights movement, you see all the elements that would, under the shield of secrecy, I think, be needed to give rise to a sense that uh, directing the tools of the surveillance state against Muslims was uh, justified because they were inherently uh, you know, a potential threat. I mean, there are, of course, 
a number of differences. We haven't yet discovered anything as egregiously uh, anti-democratic as uh, occurred in the 1960s and 70s, uh, akin to COINTELPRO. And we also have much more oversight. We have the FISA court. We have uh, the two standing intelligence committees, uh, various intelligence community inspector generals, um, but also a vastly larger scale. And so while there is greater oversight, the FISA court itself has admitted that it's basically dependent on the NSA itself to come and report that when they, they have gotten up to something that they shouldn't have. Um, as we noticed in a couple of cases, they do often do this eventually, at least when it appears to have been inadvertent. But in many cases, uh, as for example, with the 215 program, the telephony metadata program, and the uh, comparable internet metadata program, um, essentially the, the civil liberty safeguards imposed by the FISA court to um, attempt to mitigate harms to privacy by this large-scale collection of data about Americans were basically systematically violated for three years before someone internally noticed them and felt it was important to bring them to the attention of the FISA court. Um, in another case involving the FISA Amendments Act and bulk collection of uh, content, um, it took, I think, only a few months, but the FISA court again realized that they had basically been misinformed about the way the program operated uh, in a way that led to, as far as they could estimate, because the scale is so vast, they're not actually able to look in a granular way at everything that's being collected, but as best they could estimate, probably uh, the collection of about 56,000 totally domestic communications per year um, under an authority that is never supposed to result in the collection of totally domestic communications. Um, this scale, I think, is, is troubling for a couple reasons. It makes it much harder to be confident that wrongdoing of the kind uh, we, you know, we, we documented in the past will ever be uncovered. We certainly don't know the full extent of that past wrongdoing. We know that there are, for example, historians have discovered individual routing slips from much larger files that were destroyed. Um, giving indication of illicit wiretaps or illegal break-ins targeted at domestic dissidents. Um, but those are one-offs. Parts of larger files we know existed, uh, but whose full contents we will never know. Um, but even with records being maintained, of course, when you're collecting millions of communications and billions of communications under a range of different authorities, um, it's much more difficult to be assured that you will detect wrongdoing when it happens, in part because the collection is so much less targeted. So for example, in the in 1970s, even before the church committee, uh, one attorney general did happen to notice at one point um, that there was a wiretap in the, on the offices of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and said, why has this wiretap been running for 20 years? Did you have an investigation underway? And um, if, if you haven't, in fact, indicted anyone after 20 years, perhaps it's time to wrap that up. Um, whereas under a system of bulk collection where phone records about everyone are maintained for five years, where record, uh, the, the fruits of internet intercepts, especially of encrypted communication, are retained indefinitely, there's nothing along those lines that would give you uh, a sense that something is intrinsically inappropriate because you know that a wiretap has been targeted at a particular facility. The collection is so large scale that those red flags don't go up. Um, and another perhaps the most important difference, is that there is an architectural component to the surveillance that exists now. Uh, one of the most recent disclosures on the, uh, the new uh, Glenn Greenwald site um, concerning the family of quantum programs maintained by NSA is that 
uh, instead of doing targeted hacking on a few hundred computers that they need to infiltrate um, because certain targets can't be wiretapped by normal means, uh, they developed automated systems sitting on the internet backbone designed to intercept communications flagged by certain selectors, certain abstract characteristics of those communications, um, so that malware can be implanted on those computers. Malware capable of exfiltrating data, copying email conversations, remotely activating uh, webcams and microphones, turning, in effect, a computer or mobile device into a remote bug. Uh, and the idea is to make it possible to do this, not on a scale of hundreds or even thousands, but millions in an automated way, not requiring individualized human action to uh, penetrate a system. It's also clear that the targets are not just individual computers, but system administrators and network routers. Uh, one of the slides uh, released as part of the Snowden cache uh, includes the legend, I hunt sysadmins. Uh, the idea there is that there's value not just to infiltrating the computers of particular targets, but of entire service provider networks, so that in case you ever need to spy on a Belgian or uh, you know, someone in Suriname, the major networks servicing those populations have already been pre-compromised just in case. That architectural change means that in the event of a, a new Hoover, in the event of a renewed will, perhaps in the wake of a new emergency, to use in an even more radical way these intelligence powers, there is a structure that would enable what uh, I think Edward Snowden has called only slightly melodramatically, the potential for turnkey tyranny. And so when we look to the past and look at the kind of abuses that were exposed uh, by the burglars in media, the question to ask, I think, is what would it look like if the same sort of malicious intent that we see behind those acts of surveillance were empowered by the architecture of surveillance that the NSA has now created, built into the very communications backbones that bind our lives together, that track what we say, where we go, what we read, uh, who we love um, on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. And if you do think about that, I, I fear you may not get a very good night's sleep tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. Uh, we have a little bit of time for, for questions. Um, I will uh, call on, on people. You can direct them to either Betty or Julian. Um, and uh, I'm going to insist, as always, particularly since we only have about 10 minutes, uh, Make them, uh, make them brief and make them actually questions. You know, raise your hand, wait for the microphone, uh, state your affiliation if you think it's important, uh, but make sure that what you have to say ends with a question mark. And uh, after that, we will uh, uh, go out uh, around the uh, corner to the Winter Garden for uh, some uh, soft drinks, wine, cheese, and beer, and there are uh, books available for purchase and signing. Uh, and I urge you to get one. Um, yes, sir. For uh, Ms. Medzger, uh, two brief um, points. One is there was another journalist, I think Fred J. Cook of The Nation, wrote a book about the, the FBI in the 60s. 
But there is another item that you should be aware of. There was an explosion at the New York headquarters of the American Communist Party in the 1960s. That, and the party pointed out afterwards, who, was, who the, is, has never been found who did this, but the party pointed out afterwards that the FBI had the building under surveillance constantly. So the FBI either caused the explosion or knew of it and did nothing to prevent it. And ironically, at that time, this was on West 26th Street. This happened in the mid-60s. Much of the damage was to the Serbian Orthodox Cathedral across the street, much of whose congregation was anti-communist. But this is a, a act of domestic terrorism that, as far as I know, has never been solved. And I personally think it is likely either done or, by the FBI or mm. the FBI knew of it and failed to prevent it. Mm. I did not know about that incident. I certainly imagine that your analysis is correct. They would have been very nearby. Um, and your Fred Cook, um, I consider he was excellent, and I, I consider what he did more analysis than investigative reporting. But it was very important to the discussion. And I, one of the things that I require, his, his material appeared in The Nation first. And um, everybody who wrote letters to The Nation about his articles, then acquired an FBI file, and they and their neighbors were visited. <laughs> so thank you for that observation. Yes, ma'am. Yes, hi, my name is Ellen Murphy, and I just want to know if there's any correlation. We just had somebody named Glenn Ford get released after 30 years of being on death row for doing something that he didn't do. And I'm wondering if there's any correlation between these kind of um, targeting as to how many of these people who have been in jail for, you know, decades or on death row, and they're innocent. Well, there are examples of that. I don't know about whether that's true in his case. I haven't heard that. But there was an example in Los Angeles, uh, Geronimo Pratt, where an FBI informer uh, testified falsely and he was convicted for a crime that a judge 30-some years later uh, declared that had, he had not committed. Uh, he was in prison for 30-some years as a result of the informer's false testimony. So it, does it did happen. Yes, uh, switching gears a bit, um, do you see any parallel between, uh, obviously, a, a very uh, different situation, but uh, between the abuses at the FBI in the, you know, 70s on back and what's happened at the IRS with the systematic targeting of conservative groups, do you see any parallel parallel there with uh, Lois Lerner, et cetera, as kind of like a, an FBI light type of situation where they use the power of a government agency to go after a group with which the White House in which the uh, uh, party in power disagreed? Also, so I mean, it, it's not clear to me how much that the, um, the current thing is, is a, a, a matter of, of sort of internal just sort of bias in terms of the, the officials having a, um, a kind of still a skewed sense of which groups sort of were likely to engage in um, in electioneering under pretext or, um, you know, something that was actually directed externally. But the um, church committee 
which in, ad- uh, in addition to reporting uh, extensively, if not comprehensively, on abuses by FBI and NSA, um, did contain a, essentially a long section on the use of the IRS um, as a tool for uh, um, essentially political intimidation. Um, so that would certainly not be, uh, certainly wouldn't be unprecedented um, if it were occurring today. I, uh, I mean, I think the jury is, is still out on, um, on how far uh, um, the, the targeting here was, um, was, you know, in some way consciously political. Yes, ma'am. Um, for both of you, uh, my name's Bella. I hear a lot of passion in the story of the young couple saying, we're going to do this anyway, and obviously you have, um, Ms. Metzger, experience of being sort of on the front line as well, being a reporter in the situation, and you, uh, Mr. Sanchez, having heard so much and learned so much about what is faced by journalists, do you feel like, as we see uh, Glenn Greenwald fleeing to another country and Snowden being untraceable, do you feel like journalists are in an environment where those stories can even come to the surface now? Is there enough that is done to protect that sort of revelation or what can individual citizens also do to try to promote and protect those journalists when they do reveal documents that may be illegally obtained? Hmm. Well, I appreciate the, the question. That's one of the things that I've been thinking about lately and, and hearing about from, from others is the very substantial impact of the present surveillance situation on journalists. Um, for I guess it's it's uh, most evident in the difficulty of dealing with sources, and particularly people who want to be whistleblowers, because not only uh, they're they're under their phone records are and email, um, you could you should assume that their records are under watch all the time, and that therefore if you get in touch with them. Um, you get them in trouble and you get in trouble yourself. And it's, I understand that it's having an enormous chilling effect right now on many reporters who are re- reporting on uh, these issues in the government. And actually many, many types of issues, not just intelligence kinds of, kinds of issues. So it, it is a very important thing. And you two may want to chime in on that since you're closer to the people doing that. I mean, I will say, as someone who played a very minor role in sort of consulting with, with Glenn um, in the, a few weeks before the first of the stories broke, I, I, uh, one of the things that resonated uh, reading this book was that, um, that sense of losing touch of, uh, with, with when you're being paranoid. You, know, you have the, a couple of weeks of kind of um, finding myself thinking, well, my God, I've been talking to Glenn Greenwald. Is, you know, my email's being intercepted, or is my phone likely to be, you know, why is that car parked outside my window for so long? Um, and you go, no, that's crazy. Um, and you realize that at some level, you know, it's not totally crazy. You should probably just assume it's crazy. Um, you know, I, I think journalists, I know a lot of journalists, and uh, they've certainly, I think, become more conscious of the need for uh, for what the speaks call OPSEC. Um, there are a lot more of them uh, asking me, you know, can you help me set up PGP? Can you show me around tour? Um, what do I need to do to, to ensure that um, I'm not, um, you know, essentially risking my source's safety if someone needs to come to me with information? Um, but 
I also found a, you know, a, a, a level of defiance. I mean, I, I don't think, certainly as consciously, they're intimidated. I think it's impossible not to, somewhere in the back of your head when you're working on this stuff, kind of um, wonder whether men in dark suits are going to show up at some point to, at the very least, um, you know, depose you and, and try to ask you about um, who you've been talking to. But um, my sense is that the more the press are targeted, the more, um, at least the journalists I know, become defiant and insist on uh, not being cowed. I think there's, there's, you know, that's just something that's just hammered it, you know, fortunately, uh, is, is something that's a, a pretty core part of, of journalistic culture. If you want to, um, I mean, there's a sort of super Streisand effect, if you remember that phrase. I mean, if you, wanna, if you want to ensure that you're on the front page of the newspaper, try to intimidate a journalist. But there, take it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that's true, but I, I also think that there are more and more obstacles to the everyday um, of doing that, the daily act of doing that, because you feel that your sources are endangered. Yes. Don't you agree that that's... Right. Well, so because we're, we're at some level, you know, we have the First Amendment. Um, you know, Glenn Greenwald is coming back on a book tour. Um, Ed Snowden is not. The, despite um, people in the intelligence community going out of their way to use words like accomplices, describing reporters who have worked with, uh, with Snowden and other, uh, other leakers, um, I think journalists can, for the most part, feel confident that um, they're probably not going to get anything, face anything worse than being deposed. They're not um, realistically going to end up in jail for um, for publishing something the government didn't want published. Um, for the whistleblowers, it's another story entirely. And certainly I've talked to journalists who have said, uh, now that they understand how comprehensively communications are monitored, uh, people with stories about government waste or misconduct um, in some classified region are a lot more skittish about, never mind never mind coming forward, a lot more skittish about being seen to talk to a journalist at all, even about things that are not classified or sensitive because, uh, you know, there's one more, one more thing that might bring you under scrutiny. I'm going to take a moderator's privilege on the last one, and I just, uh, and then we can adjourn. Um, I, I just, and, and either of you uh, can comment on this. It struck me reading the book and listening to some of our discussion that, uh, J. Edgar Hoover is such a perfect embodiment of such a, a visible and you know fairly repulsive figure, uh, such an epitome of uh, the corruption of power that I wonder if that that example doesn't, uh, in historical memory, think that you know in the way that somebody could say, you know, Stalin was really a bad man and and sort of. Uh, lose sight of the dangers of uh, concentrated power in general, because uh, while this was going on, it's true that, that Hoover uh, was an especially egregious example, but you had, uh, you know, you talked about Cy Hirsch reporting on Operation Chaos of the CIA, you know, at the, during this time, the uh, National Security Agency with a, a number of faceless uh, administrators is collecting all international tele telegraphic data in the United States. And there were giant abuses even outside of, uh, of the FBI. And uh, I wonder if you could, either you could quickly say something about that. I, I think it's a very important thing to think about because although he had been, Hoover had been idolized for so long because what came out was so ugly and malicious, to use your word. It was, I think it's become easy to think, 
well, we'll never have the likes of that again, <laughs> that he was an exception. And to realize that the people who have created, it's systems today that make the difference. And the people who've created those systems who are in charge of them are sort of faceless bureaucrats rather than people that we can see as, as dreadful personalities out to harm people. And I think that's one of the reasons why the public, maybe in the past year, has been somewhat slow uh, to, to realize the, the power of the surveillance systems that, that we've learned are in place. I mean, it just reminds me, of, I had a debate uh, some months back with uh, someone who said something to the effect of, well, if you're worried about uh, you know, the consequences for civil liberties, why don't you try, uh, you know, living in China or Iran where they really, uh, you know, clamp down on civil liberties. And I remember saying, well, you know, yes, we are better than Iran. I hope that's not, I hope that's not the bar. Um, you know, there's no sign that we've got anything near as bad as Hoover. Um, it's, it's a low bar. Um, so on the one hand, I, I will say, you know, individuals do sort of matter. Um, uh, in the initial authorization of, of Stellar Wind and the warrantless wiretapping, um, David Addington, Dick Cheney's lawyer, who drafted the president's order, um, sort of noted to then NSA director Michael Hayden, you know, technically the way I wrote this, um, you're not actually limited to getting international communications. The way I wrote it, you can get the domestic communications of people suspected of some kind of terrorist links too. Um, and Hayden, to his, to his great credit, said no. Um, we are a foreign intelligence agency. That's a line I will not cross, even if you've written the author this authorization in a way that would technically allow me to do it. Um, so people do matter, but in some sense, um, yeah, it's systems and not the malice of individuals that's important. Um, so Hoover probably made things worse than they would have been, certainly in the case of King, against whom he, he really harbored a personal vendetta. Um, but what you see is this is a phenomenon that happened across agencies, across presidents, often at their direction. It's the systems and structures of surveillance and control more than the malicious intent of any particular uh, individual that, um, that, that sort of create the stifling effect and the potential for misuse. Um, I remember uh, a little while back, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Chris Inglis, who's the sort of top civilian, the number two guy at NSA, and just an absolutely thoughtful, uh, 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 genuine, very committed person who, who I can tell believes it, it's important to protect America. Um, and, you know, when you watch the hearings we have on these programs now, there's a kind of a pro forma 10 minutes of, you know, well, we don't think you're bad people. We respect the intelligence community. And uh, in some sense, I think that misses the point. And what I, what I, um, what I said to Chris Inglis after we, we met is, um, you know, you seem like a great guy. If I trusted anyone to run a machine for surveillance this potent, I would certainly want your hand on the lever. I just don't think anyone can be trusted with that. 